Oh, have you seen the news about this Amazon halo? It's recording and judging our voices. So Bezos wants to tone police us now? Oh, nobody tone polices me. Uh, Senator Klobuchar, is everything okay? I heard yelling and a crash. Should I retrieve another replacement laptop for you? Oh, yeah, you betcha. Everything is just fine. What I need is for you to prepare Minnesota nice for me. Uh, I'm sorry, prepare what? Oh, right, you're the new aide. We really need to streamline this training process. Feels like there's a different person every week. Anyways, Minnesota nice is my mech. You know, the 50-foot tall robot in the basement hangar, the one that looks just like me. Go make sure it's fully equipped and ready to roll. I'm paying a visit to Bezos. Uh, yes, Senator, uh, right away. First it was that little quirk Pete butthead, and now Amazon wants to tell me when I'm being too aggressive. Me? This halo nonsense has crossed the line. I've tried following the procedures, but regulation doesn't cut it anymore. It's time to fight tech with mech. Clabber and Klobuchar coming for dinner and hat dishes on the menu. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 28 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, this week, we're bringing you guys an episode that's been a long time coming. I mean, like, this was this was one of the first episodes, uh, one of the first topics that we talked about when we were conceptualizing this podcast. We knew we had to do it. We knew we had to bring it to you. And, and you know, we feel like now is the right time because... Uh, a lot of people been showing their ass online, using using the L word, <laughs> tossing it around, uh, uh, accusing accusing me and Ed uh, of being luddites. Ooh, just like thunder coming in. <laughs> oh, that's a bad word. That's a horrible word. It's you a it's a it's that. a slur. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in in Silicon Valley, there's nothing more derogatory than calling someone a luddite. For uh, I mean, for them, for all these like uh, innovation editor ghouls at you know these think tanks at the Cato Institute, at the Progressive Policy Institute, right? Mm-hmm. Like all these innovation editors, technology wonks, like they throw out the they throw out the luddite word, and for them, that's 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 the end of the discussion right there that's 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 their one mic drop moment 
And, you know, I think that it is important going forward that we like, you know, give some propaganda against that. Uh, because I know if you're anything like me, familiarity with the Luddites is lo- relatively limited to like the vague conception that they were over there in England. Uh, and they smashed a bunch of shit because they didn't like it and it was taking their jobs or something like that. That is like pretty much the, uh, the understanding of Luddism I had for the vast majority of my life and with like little to no presentation of what actually happened outside of like insults being thrown around and like very very uh false and (laughs) flagrantly false uh, depictions in the culture i think i don't even think it's right to call it a misunderstanding of history because it's it's complete revisionism of history right um Mm. the 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 way the label luddite is used and understood now is purely based on a, a capitalist revisionism of a, a, uh, a labor rights movement, right? A working class movement. And as we'll talk about, like, um, I think part of the reason why there's been like such a really sustained effort to you know, honestly lie and propagate lies about Luitsism, you know, because like you said, it was widespread. It was a widespread sentiment and people acted upon it. Like a lot, I think today we see a lot where people do have widespread sentiments, but there's there's the action maybe may not be there, which is not to say like there's not direct actions and mutual aids and and all sorts of projects going on. No one is doing that sort of destruction and unmaking. And in fact, there's like a very there's been like a huge effort, in fact, to make people feel shameful for that, to disown that sort of stuff when it happens, whether it's like property being damaged during riots whether it's even the idea that you don't want like a new thing to be made or that you're saying that you don't want a new thing to be made while you use a new thing, you know, um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of energy um, and effort to lay ground for this idea that if you don't like something, you just have to, uh, you have to hope that like your words are enough and then maybe do like sanctioned actions um, and that anything else is way too fucking far. But like, you know, this is this is an obvious this is an obvious trick. This is what has always been deployed against every single tactic that has ever been effective. And especially with the idea that you should, you know, smash machines um, that in one way or another uh, are constructed against your interest. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's I think it's really telling as well that you brought in the kind of you know like the movements from earlier this year you know people in the streets people um doing vandalism and property destruction right like i think we should be understanding that as part of the history and trajectory of a a, a kind of luddite politics right because Mm -hmm. um i mean i can even imagine i'm i'm sure people you know looking at the the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, the protest around George Floyd that were really popping off, you know, looking at people in the streets, uh, smashing police cars and smashing windows and businesses and burning down gas stations and stuff being like, there's Luddites on the, uh, the, they're tearing through the street. There's Luddites on the loose. Anarchist. Anarchist. Antifa. Antifa. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's an all, it's something that always recurs. Everyone, anytime there's any sort of like agitation that hits close to home and it threatens to disrupt business as usual, uh, threatens to leverage mass amounts of people and their proximity to some important lever in the economy into this in society or culture. You know, anytime there's like a movement that threatens to leverage 
uh, the people who are close to that, then suddenly, you know, we've gone too far. And I think like with, especially with the idea of technology, right? Luddism brings to bear a lot of questions primarily about, you know, I mean, obviously there's a property question. Do you have the right to destroy something, especially if it's a threat abstractly to you? But also a larger question about technology because it's not simply that you're going out of your way to destroy something, but it's, you know, like the society needs to be having these sorts of conversations about whether or not we're going to let certain things exist or not exist, right? It's not enough that something exists. And too often when something is defended, it's not defended on any, on any real or concrete or um, you know, rational uh, basis other than it exists and like the work of unmaking it is going to be so hard and there's so many things that scaffold off of it now. But we are going to have to get a lot more experimental with our institutions, with our arrangements, with the industrial model that we have. If we have really any interest in not only creating a society that helps everybody, right, but is, you know, that sustains itself. You know, questions about technology are very prickly, especially since like the way that we create technology is like, you know, we, we is, is completely conjoined to capitalism. We have not yet, or we're not at the point where we have an industrial process or de uh, for development of technology and innovation that is separate from capitalism. We will have to, you know, go back and undo a lot of shit and seriously ask whether certain things exist for people or they exist for other things that are necessary for capital accumulation, necessary for rentiers, necessary for all this bullshit that is antithetical to like what we want as a society. Yeah, I mean, I think you've really hit the nail on the head about like the contemporary anti-Luddite politics um, is really, you know, the way it's used as an insult, um, the way it's used to tarnish people as anti-technology, anti-progress, primitive and backwards in some way uh, is really, you know, on one hand, it is based on this, this radical notion that the mere existence of something is enough to justify its existence in perpetuity, right? Mm -hmm. That like, because we build something means that uh, it has a right to continue existing, continue operating, and continue affecting people's lives in whatever way it does, merely by the uh, this this weird ontology, right? That it, and it's all wrapped up in this kind of like technological determinism as well. That by striking out against technology, um, which of course you know people always separate from the interest that it materializes. Uh, the conditions out of which it comes out of, right? The, as you were saying, the the fact that the um, creation and implementation of technology is completely dominated by a capitalist industrial model, is dominated by a political economy that is designed uh, to to create machinery that benefits some at the stake of many others. All of those concerns, all of that analysis, is completely. Uh, abstracted away from the fact that there is a thing, there is a solid and material thing. And that thing, technology leads to progress, as we all know. And therefore, well, we have to we have to get out the way of, of this, this pathway of progress that this technology sets us on and, and do so in an uh, unquestionably, right? You, you can't raise any questions about that thing. This conversation kind of leads me into thinking that the Terminator movies are being retconned for straight up propaganda because when those movies <laughs> first came out, they were like, you've got to fear the machines, the machines are going to overtake us. The most recent one 
where he's the friendly, you know, he's like, he learned yeah. to love humanity and he's <laughs> here to help us. Get out of here with that bullshit. <laughs> oh yeah, isn't that like in the second or third one, there's a literal fucking drone. It's a warning, man. There's a drone that comes in and murks everybody in the Pentagon, right? And then the mm-hmm. and then the rest of the uh, Terminators come on. And now what? Like you said, like all of them, I think are just friends. They're like, I'm here to protect you. I'm actually a good machine. I'm one of the good ones. You know, Skynet had a few rotten apples in the barrel, and then they infected all the. <laughs> And they're and they're such sweet little robots. Look at them, the giant foods, you know, like showing the little old ladies where their are. Oh, yeah. Are. Oh, God. If you see those, you have to kill them. You have a, as a listener to the podcast and a member of the human community you have a moral obligation to destroy <laughs> those things. They are hell <laughs> spawn. Allegedly, allegedly, if there were such a if allegedly you would have such because I'm I'd probably. Yeah, there, there's a there's a there's a blanket. <laughs> uh, there's there's a blanket parody. Uh, disclaimer yeah. on this whole episode because I, I don't know I don't know where this conversation is going to take us you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, the Terminator example is perfect as well because like if there were some real life Terminators happening right now you know uh, you'll just just imagine a world where Skynet was in its infancy you know definitely definitely doesn't look anything like the world that we currently live in uh, but you know you would have venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and all these people these innovation policy wonks all these people saying oh, oh you, the terminator is neutral right like the term it's it, it, the technology is an evil um yeah. it, you know it's about it's about who controls the terminator yeah, of course exactly. they 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 <laughs> never go on to ask that question uh, 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 uh that real question of all right well who is controlling the terminator and for what ends they're like no 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 that's not what i meant i didn't mean to raise yeah. that, that, that concern <laughs> yeah i think that is interesting too like every it's always like uh, it's some distant future operator, which also is interesting in that it, like that is really fertile ground for a redcon, right? Because you don't have to like you just trust it. Like whoever did it, of course, their intentions are pure and unquestionable. Whereas like if it's something in the past, you can scrutinize it and debate it, you know. But if it's in the future, you just have to go with it. What are you gonna? You know, there's not much you can do about it except maybe mm-hmm. changing uh, the future so they don't have to do it, right? And um, the Terminator has. Yeah, the direction of the franchise has been really interesting, especially because, like, you know, some of the other stuff that James Cameron will put out. I, I have, I would, I would love to just like sit with him for an hour and be like, so we got Terminator One, Two, we got uh, Avatar, and then the next six that you keep saying you're gonna make, and then, <laughs> and then we have Terminator Genesis. You want to explain that one? Are you associating with that project? Why is uh, why why is this why is this like a good cop? It it also it another retcon that's interesting is he did actually frame like the Terminators in earlier movies as cops on purpose because they're supposed to be like killer machines. Mm-hmm. So the retcon of them is really fascinating that now we're also saying there can be good cops low key, right? They just need to be trained. The the cops that are coming to us from the future went through like workshops. They went through anti-racist mm-hmm. workshops. They went through diversity <laughs> trainings. They have body cams, you know, they're good. <laughs> I think I think there's some question about the uh, uh how much involvement James Cameron had in some of the later movies as well, right? Like then that makes like perfect the, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like the series kind of got taken out of his control 
the the question about technology and, and capital and the terminator right it, it all comes down to a question as well about property which is really which is really what they want to talk about when people talk about like right. uh you know technology is untouchable Ooh. we can't be against it we can't be striking out against it what they really want to talk about is the question of property is something that's untouchable that it's sacred right. and that that also gets to you know you when you brought up the movements in the street and you know people condemning vandalism and looting and stuff like there's a similarity here in the critique to Luddism because underneath it and connecting all that is a critique against anybody who uh, would deny this the sacredness of property going to this piece that we read um in the baffler uh by richard ryan uh called a nod to ned ludd you know it talks about the origins of luddism as itself beginning right in spring of 1811 where bands of you know working men in nottingham england were smashing stocking frames and those are basically just machines that make hoisery right and and these attacks were you know, happening at night, they were following with others, like over 44 separate attacks on 500 machines, you know, in the city, in one city, which is Nottingham, between uh, 1811 and 1812, um, and waves of attacks continuing for years forward. And I think it's interesting, you know, when he, when he tops off this uh, essay to think about how the discourses that emerged, you know, um, were immediately, I think, more aware of the property question than we think. Like when we think about it, we mm -hmm. just think about, you know, Luddites because of how vulgar the discussion has become, smash it down to like, oh, it wasn't a widespread thing. It wasn't an ongoing thing. It was just like a bunch of people angry. But like even like the, the quote that he opens up with is like this guy saying, um, uh, but to return to the Luddites, the danger is of the most imminent kind. I would hang about a score in the country and send off shiploads to Botany Bay. And if there were no other means of checking the treasonable practices which are carried on in the Sunday newspapers, I would suspend the habeas corpus, shut up these bellows blowers, and the fire may perhaps go out. Right? You know, like uh, 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 the call to action for like decisive smashing of the Luddites, right? Because you know, these questions of uh, destroying property, destroying productive property especially, uh, were also happening at the same time as labor unrest, where people were also wrestling with questions about, okay, well, you know, what is the role that we should have and the arrangement that we should have with these machines, right? Mm -hmm. um, should the manufacturers uh, be the ones that are deciding how they're used and using them to reinforce a specific uh, wage arrangement? Should we be the ones who are in control of them? Should they just be not used at all and we should protect our livelihood against them? By this historian, uh, Malcolm I. Thomas, to really insist that Luddism was not like a riot by uh, by workers, as Hobshawn put it, he said it was a collective bargaining by riot. Not that it was like a working class spontaneous sort of action, but that it was just like a very local thing that was specifically speaking to like exploitation and poor trade and that it didn't do anything. It did no good. It brought down like the livelihood in these Northern communities and failed to live, uh, raise their living standards and that the machines came anyway. So it doesn't even matter. And, and you know, his, I think the, uh, maybe the gem of his thought on this is, you know, that he 
argued um, the continued enterprise of local workmen in the field of invention and the total absence of attempts to destroy new machinery after Ludism confirm that Ludism neither continued nor inaugurated an anti-machinery tradition. I think it, it is, it's important to think about, uh, and as we'll go through like the history of Ludism, but also like just like in the scholarship, there's like a contention or a debate over it because of the, I think, the understanding, right, that if this is part of a tradition, then it can be put aside other traditions and movements and connected to them as they raise questions about, you know, how power is supposed to be distributed. And then the struggle of Ludism suddenly is not just like a stupid local squabble, but of but just another manifestation of like the eternal debate between, you know, individuals who do not have power and individuals who do about like how society is going to be organized and structured and uh, whether foots are going to be on people's necks or not. Painting the original Luddites, right, these these early 19th century uh, movement, uh, painting them as essentially just people taking part in kind of wanton destruction. Just they're the fucking joker, right? They just want to watch it all burn. It's chaos for the sake of chaos. That revisionism has been really successful. I mean, we can see it again in the way that Luddite is used now as this like insult. We can see it in the way that like uh, our our understanding of this movement is basically just a footnote in a like sixth grade history um, textbook that was like. And then there then there were some people who were really against technology, but they were all but but the but the wave of progress swept them aside and left them behind. And you know, and that and now we have. Uh, uh, you know, industrial machinery, and we have the the cotton gin. Now we go you fast. Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now 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 we go fast, right? I mean, you could say the same exact arguments are levied against things like the cotton gin as well, right? Like I remember being in like my middle school social studies class, you know in Mississippi, learning about the the cotton gin and about this amazing innovation um, and about how uh, it it led to, you know, so much economic progress and and so much growth and all that. And no questions whatsoever about understanding technology as the historian um, David F. Noble has put it uh, in the present tense. Right. Mm-hmm. Understanding these technologies, um, not in terms of some like far off future, not in terms of some revisionist past, but understanding them within the conditions that they emerge um, and um, understanding their impacts on the, the people that are uh, actively um, having to use them, being subjugated by them and, and the, you know, the interests of capital that are doing that. Right. Even asking the question, why did capital create the cotton gin, or why did capital create these uh, uh, these stocking frames that the Luddites were smashing? Those questions are never asked because once mm-hmm. you start asking those questions, it starts opening up uh, a Pandora's box of sins that you you don't want to you know these people don't want to contend with. Right, you know, especially like if you look at the Luddites, right? The Luddites, you know, smash hundreds of these frames across Nottingham, across Leeds. And again, and again, like you have to look at what was actually going on at the time, you know, the in Nottingham in 1812, the doubling of the number of stockings produced happened not because of like new innovations and techniques, but because of the, you know, expansion of or the attempts to expand automotive 
labor in this industry, right? And that put workers out of work uh, in the name of efficiency. And that also helps suppress wages in the name of efficiency, right? So if we're looking at it in the present tense, right? We're, at, we're looking at a bunch of workers, you know, being further miserated, pushed out of their work, specifically because of machine, when does not need to be that way. It Like, you know, I think a good example is to think about today where, you know, there has been, as we've talked about with Aaron uh, Benioff, of, of, uh, about the fact that automation has not stolen every single job, right? And that in reality, what ends up happening is, you know, there is persistent un- un- underemployment, right? But there's also been uh, use of automation to augment human labor, right? And one question that I think comes up in the Luddite discourse that does get eliminated is whether or not uh, technology could be used instead of massively expanding production while pushing out workers to increase their ability to produce, right? Um, And do so at a level where it still increases uh, the production of the stockings by significant amount, allows them to, you know, earn more income, right? And doesn't keep deepening uh, the emisceration, uh, deepening the substandard wages that they're paid, or the practices of bypassing payment in cash and instead doing it with uh, goods from the company or goods from the manufacturer, right? And I think it's also instructive that as the article talks about, you know, and as Byrne talks about, as Hobshawn talks about, as Noble talk about, like that these, when you look closely at uh, how the machines were destroyed, right? Often you'd have rooms where machines from manufacturers that, you know, used them to massively expand exploitation were smashed, right? If you used your machines to drive down wages, they were smashed. If you used your machines to fire workers, they were smashed. But if you did not, then lo and behold, after night would uh, end and the sun would rise, you would find your machine still there intact, right? You know, stuff like that, you know, these sorts of incidences in Nottingham and Leeds are left out of like the standard discussion of that first wave of Luddite attacks. And instead, you know, we're given a picture of a very disorganized mass of workers where even at the time there was more fear or concern that it was a very orchestrated campaign by, you know, like King Ludd, right? Ned Ludd having been a name assigned to uh, what was believed to be like the orchestrator of this, uh, of this growing movement, right? It's called King Ludd and himself, or, you know, this, you know, person and their communications in the uh, newspapers being assigned as like the, the root of instigation or the root of cause. Whereas it's more likely that, you know, because of how widely spread the sentiment was, because of how widespread these attacks were becoming, because of how frustrated many workers and laborers were across Leeds and Nottingham, uh, that it was not like some lone King Ludd, right? But individuals submitting or, you know, trying to elicit people to uh, rally to the cause of smashing machines um, mm-hmm. that were threatening their livelihood, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is such an important point as well that, um, you know, the Luddites weren't just indiscriminately swinging their sledgehammers and hitting whatever was in their pathway. It was highly targeted. And why was it targeted? Because it was motivated by a politics, right? It was motivated by an understanding of needing to confront the, the technology and the technopolitics of industrial capitalism um, in its infancy. 
they saw the writing on the wall that these kind of like, you know, supposedly uh, labor-saving devices of efficiency were, were actually being used to um, speed up their work, were being used to make their work more dangerous um, until they could just put them out of work, right? Yeah, you know, we should then, you know, from that, I think distill also the idea or the question, right? You know, why should people submit to or accept conditions that in the long term they know are going to eviscerate their livelihood, but also in the short and medium term, they know that they're also going to make day to day harder for them or, you know, work to make it harder for them um, when the benefit that we're being told is going to be given out is largely for the back end or, or for the pockets of the owner of the manufactory or the company of the warehouse. You know, when we are told as an example, modern day example would be like, you know, uh, the implementation of technologies and warehouses to help Amazon workers uh, deliver things more frequently. You know, where are the benefits for this technology going? Are they going to the workers? Certainly not, because the workers at many of these factories, at many of these warehouses have higher injury rates than they would otherwise, right? Um, they also are not being paid more because of it, right? They get paid more usually if there is uh, public pressure, Um and they're not being paid more also because they don't have a union, thanks to Amazon's you know, militant uh, anti-unionizing efforts using Pinkertons and other spy agencies and technology, right? So the benefits aren't going to the workers, right, who are often uh, more exploitable with this technology, who are often more insecure with this technology, who are often expected to submit themselves to more degrading um, conditions without dignity in this, uh, with this technology. Okay. Uh, is being passed off to the consumer. I mean, yeah, you know, in the sense that more convenience, faster shipping options are being rolled out and rolled out. But also as another side effect of it is that because of this increased uh, accessibility to the convenience of it, right? And the rapid uh, shipping and the breakneck pace, right? There's also a growing epidemic of fake goods and uh, being offered on these platforms or defective goods being offered on these platforms and fraudulent schemes being used to exploit the breakneck uh, pace, uh, the you know uh, returns policy that the company has. Uh, so I think that the convenience factor is not a convincing one to say, all right, well, the technology being implemented goes to the consumer. Okay, so where is it largely going to? It's largely going to shareholders who are realizing returns and that as Amazon continues to ship more things faster, right? And this continues to stabilize it. And maybe if, if it tries hard enough, undermine uh, the growth of its labor cost, even as it hires tens of thousands of new workers, um, that they're going to see larger and larger returns on their investment. They're going to see larger and larger market share for the company. Um, the benefits are also going to uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, who mm -hmm. is many times over the world's richest man, who if he gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to every single Amazon worker right now, he'd be just as rich as he was before the pandemic. Which, um, that, that's such <laughs> a wild statistic to understand. That, yeah, I, I think I heard that on one of the latest Trash Future um, episodes, Whereas like, yeah, like, like Bezos could give over $100,000 to every single worker at Amazon and be just as rich as he was at the beginning of the pandemic. So that's how much money he's made this year, which just, and, and Amazon employees, like, tens of thousands of people, over a hundred thousand people across the world. That is absolutely in just insane accumulation.
And he's hired more, right? He's hired tens mm-hmm. of thousands during the pandemic. So it's, you know, because like- Because people are cheap right now, right? Like you yeah. gotta understand mm-hmm. this as, you know, Amazon is uh, on the pathway to being a monopoly, but it's also on the pathway to being a monopsony in the terms right. of like a monopoly buyer. Um, but for human labor, right? It's right. a monopsony for people, for workers, because people are desperate, people are cheap. And so, you know, you, you, you buy, buy low and, and scoop up as many as you possibly can. And that's what they're doing. So then we're left with like, okay, so the technology isn't really helping the workers. There are some ancillary benefits to the consumers. Uh, the technology, again, might be helping some of the producers, but as, you know, multitude, multiple investigations have documented, Amazon Marketplace is a cutthroat area and arena, especially as people try to buy for that uh, button. Sorry, that increases the rate at which they get um, customers to buy or their position in the search uh, results, right? And Mm -hmm. this has also contributed to the epidemic of uh, fake or defective goods on the platform. Um, There's also like a predatory element to Amazon's taking in of a rate uh, or take in cut for for commission. Uh, that it charges its sellers on the platform. Um, there's also the fact that Amazon duplicates its products, um, partly because it has the technology to leverage in, uh, insights into uh, platform sellers and then replicate their goods with basics. So is the technology helping the producers? Uh, probably in the short term, but long term, it's going to be used to undercut them, replicate their product or charge them significant fees to stay on and make it their only lifeline. Okay, so... It's helping the shareholders unambiguously. It's not helping the consumers or producers clearly, and it's definitely hurting uh, the workers. Uh, why should anyone endure that? Why is that something that is allowed to happen? Uh, and the logic for why it's allowed to happen is because it benefits the shareholders, right? That usually ends up being the language in which we all speak, right? Or the capital holders or the property holders, we all end up are, are usually forced to justify, argue, quibble, debate on the grounds of the people who take the lion's share of the benefits. Um, when in reality, it should be a question of if this technology is not helping the worker, why the fuck does it exist? You know, mm-hmm. why is it being rolled out in a workplace? Why is it being rolled out to um, a workplace that is already unsafe for them in the first place, right? It's not even helping the consumer or the producer, which would be secondary and ancillary concerns and arguments, but it's definitely not helping the worker. Like the idea that efficiency or optimal, you know, production is helping the worker or helping the economy is also another thing that I feel, again, is like just connected to this you know, logic that's connected to property holders, that's connected to stakeholders or shareholders, that's connected to, you know, individuals who act with capital actually who want to see a return on it. You know, the logic, that logic is one that should be rejected. We should be asking if it helps human beings generally, not the stock market, you know, uh, <laughs> not the not the Jeff Bezos pockets, uh, not the managers, not, um, you know, arbitrary groups of people seeking to make money on this, but is it helping Uh, well-being of the individuals involved in this enterprise, which are largely the workers. Then if it's not helping them, then it's not being done in their interest. And if it's not being done in their interest, then why should they allow it to keep happening? They should smash it, right? And I think that that's like the core idea uh, to work with behind the Luddites. If it's not really helping you and you can identify that, and you can also perceive that there are ways in which it could help you, then smash it. And we can advocate for the ways that it works. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I think about this, the, the way I framed it in, in some of my work is, you know, it's like Marie Kondo, but for techno politics, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you, you look at any technology or any machinery or system and you say, does this thing contribute to human well-being and or social welfare? You know, does it spark that joy? And if not, then toss it away. It goes into the garbage. It goes into the trash. It does not deserve to be in your life uh, and it does not deserve to exist right and that 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 to me is uh, a real innovation that the luddites had was in their analysis of these technologies and and asking those questions those questions that we need to be asking of every system of every technology um, and reaching a conclusion that no this thing is not helping me it's not helping my family it's not helping uh you know the my community and therefore it doesn't deserve to exist and i, I think we can historicize the amazon warehouse example is perfect because we can i think historicize it back to the luddites as well and see um, how, you know, the, the, the owners of capital, uh, the owners of these machineries and factories back in, you know, 1811, 1812, they were doing a lot of the same exact things that we now know Amazon is doing, right? They had spies um, in the in the working class. They had spies on these uh, in these Luddite movements. You know, they were trying to gather information. They were trying to take them down from the inside. But they were also doing things that were uh, even more outright, you know, violent reactions by capital to this working class movement. Um, and and this was really, you know, not only was uh, the smashing of the stocking frames, the kind of flashpoint for uh, for uh, an analysis of techno politics. It was also a flashpoint for um, the collaboration between the state and business interest, uh, because what ended up happening is that the the uh, the England, the government, the state brought in the army to suppress. The Luddite movement. It made smashing machinery a capital offense. Right. You know, you had a you had a quote um, earlier where you're know, talking about it as treason, uh, and that is how it was framed. That by smashing these machineries, by not um, by not uh, quietly acquiescing and subjugating yourself to um, the interest of capital, that was treason, and it deserved to uh, be smashed by the army. The the the, the um, uh, factory owners themselves would like hire militia um, to camp out in the factories and ambush luddites who were coming there to smash stocking frames. And oftentimes this ended in bloodshed, right? And so fast forward now, you can see the exact same thing happening with Amazon. You can see the exact same thing with um, the state bringing the National Guard into the streets to su- uh, suppress a riotous public that's you know, acting out against property, but not, not for the sake of like, looting or vandalism for the sake of it, but because this was the medium for a political message about the police, about exploitation under capital, about oppression under the state. The factory owners in the um, 1800s, all the way up to 
the warehouse owners now, um, they all use the same argument. They all use the same line that this is a riotous public, it's chaos, uh, and it must be suppressed by, if, if the state's not going to do it, then we, capital, will, will take it upon ourselves to do it instead. And they'll gladly do it, right? You know, mm -hmm. I, I think one reason also why some of the historians can come in and debate pretty viciously about what's going on, right, is because they were a movement that was like really, 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 really big on the secret oaths, right? As far as we can tell, right, there aren't really any memoirs of uh, from any Luddite leaders, right? Nor did like they give any confessions at the gallows um, and no, as far as we can tell also, it doesn't seem like people who even like might've known inner workings of it, right, spoke up about it. You know, part of it is through the capitalist constantly sees conspiracies, even though was it, I think it was Adam Smith who said, if you see two businessmen speaking, then it's a conspiracy. And <laughs> there's, uh, there's like a, in a real sense, there was, a, it, it was a conspiracy, right? You know, and necessarily so, because as, you know, Jathan talked about, uh, they made it a capital offense, right? Despite protests from uh, people like uh, Lord Byron in the House of Commons, uh, where he, you know, had an estate near Sherrod Forest, which is where uh, Ned Ludd was, you know, supposedly uh, was supposed to have lived, even though, you know, there's no evidence he actually existed. But that Sherrod Forest is also the same place where Robin Hood was supposed to have mm -hmm. um, existed. And it was a base of operations for the, uh, uh, for the Luddites at the time too. And, you know, it was very obvious. No, no that coincidence were... that the, the evil guy in all those myths are the sheriff, right? Yeah, right, right. And, you know, in all these instances, right, you also see that, like, you know, it's very clear the poverty, the immiseration, the exploitation that's going on here and that the capital offense was an overreaction. But I think, like, you know, what, the protests of people like Lord Byron miss is that, you know, of course, there's going to be an overreaction. One, because, you know, at the same time, uh, Prime Minister Shelley Percival had been gunned down in Parliament, which is also insane, by a businessman, not even by a Luddite, but by a businessman. But at the same time, the Luddites had been like sending death threats. They had been like really gearing up the offensive on these on specific machines, right? Like in the, in the general culture, there was a conception of the Luddites as... Um, you know, like bands of these or murderers roaming around that were hurting and killing people, even though like the real murderous thugs would have been uh, the state forces that were kidnapping, uh, kidnapping suspects, you know, interrogating them, executing them, uh, you know, constantly like with routine. Again, you know, to tie back to that, you know, insistence on, uh, on the oath keeping, right? Um, is an interesting thing to flash forward with. You know, I think about how if someone were to be interested in um, unmaking things in their neighborhood that were surveillance tech, right? <laughs> These are machines also that are very expensive by large corporations, usually with partnerships from police departments, from government agencies. So you would be they're committing a huge felony, right? That would land you serious jail time likely, if not a huge insurmountable fine, right? And yeah, go, go around go around and try to smash some uh, ring camera. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and see how quickly the police respond to, to that. Like take a hammer and go to, if you're in the UK, like just take a hammer and start going to CCT 
be cameras. I mean, they'll find you real quick because they also that cam- that country is very surveilled, right? <laughs> so you'll like you'll they'll catch you like walking from camera to camera and figure out where you are. So maybe not in the UK, maybe in another country. But <laughs> <laughs> point being, right? We're just talking hypothetically. Hypothetically, here. right? Hypothetically, We're, this sort of action is also something that cannot be done really individually, right? Then or now, and. Uh, the attempts to dismiss it as an individualistic and selfish and naive approach as opposed to a massive popular move with that necessitates community support, right? And community movements uh, is, I think, an intentional sleight of hand, right? Because mm-hmm. it, one, you know, again, distracts from the historical um, fact, uh, which was that it was, you know, uh, you know, secret oaths, um, you know, commitment to protecting each other, but also today helps continue the long standing assault on solidarity and forms of connection with one another outside of the marketplace, family, school, and like the few non-private spheres of life that are allowed to us in a neoliberal society, right? Exactly, exactly. This is such an important point is that the original Luddites, they were a manifestation of a militant working class, of a working class that had solidarity, um, had an understanding of its own interest, and then organized uh, and fought for those interests, for its own position. That militancy is so necessary because, I mean, uh, of course, like naturally the you know the bosses who owned the factories and machinery hated the luddites just as they still despise any movement by labor today that challenges their authority or makes demands for better work conditions um and you know capital has always relied on its own militant tactics for subjugating labor and pursuing profits right i mean we can we we've already talked about so many examples over the last uh 200 years of of that being the case you know, while also using the courts of law and of public opinion to to strip labor of any potential, any right to fight back, right to to slander them, um, to to bring the force of the state against them, you know, by imprisoning and defaming the luddites, making themselves out to be as capital so often does just. You know, they were the victims here. They, you know, no one loves playing the victim card like capital, like the like the bosses and owners of factories and machinery. Um, they they fucking love it. Rather than perpetuating that crude insult um, and thereby thereby perpetuating the dynamic and and siding with the interests of capital, uh, we we have to look towards Luddism, towards the Luddites um, for tactical inspiration, right? Like uh, we have to look at it as using working class militancy to fight against capitalist militancy. It's important to think about, you know, this past moment and think about the things that were possible then and are not now, because, you know, a Luddite, you know, is not simply someone who looks at the technology and says, I'm not going to participate in it because of the, you know, it's exploitative nature or it's immoral or the moral facts of how it's constructed or used. Right. Nor is it someone who's simply saying like, I'm going to smash this stuff to say those things are to point toward the impulse where it's a, you should Luddite would be someone who is interested in building connections with other people to help subvert 
what is like this ongoing trend or push or attempt to make a historical force uh, the march towards computerizing everything, right? You know, there is no way for us as it stands right now, right, to uh, come with the sort of Well, I shouldn't say there's no way. At the moment, we are not capable of coming to these struggles with the sort of labor militancy that existed in the uh, early 19th century, nor are we able to keep the sort of secrets. Um, Even, you know, an oath is not going to cut it in this uh, surveillance society that we have. Um, (laughs) There's a huge divide between what we can do and what the Luddites did. You know, we can't do the targeted violence or the secrecy. These are things and activities that are more or less now the purview of the state, right? It's the state that does targeted violence, right? It's the state that does uh, secrets and surveillance and cloak and dagger stuff, right? Um, so then what does this, uh, what does it look like today? You know, what what does it look like today in a world where that first wave of Luddism is obsolete or rendered impossible because of the technology, but at the same time, that the fact that that technology's ascendance makes even more urgent uh, the questions about how we get rid of this, right? You know, can it be that the solution is to both reconstruct technologically oriented or, you know, know, with tech um, networks of secrecy um, and ways of subverting uh, surveillance and and resisting it, that would then give us the space to organize small bands of un, of uh, unmaking squads. Let's say cleanup crews. <laughs> um, something is, I have uh, very vocally advocated for uh, is that you know we we need the unmakers. Uh, right. As one opponent to the Luddites put in 1811, right there, it's not simply the sake of political violence. It's not simply that we want to be violent and destroy the machines. You know, I think, you know, as they put it, uh, George Oldham, they said, if the people are once taught that they can accomplish the objects of their wishes by a system of terror, I feel assured that they will proceed further than breaking frames. And it is difficult to say who may be the next objects of their vengeance, right? The disgust and rage and and uh, forces of violence that were thrown against the Luddites and the way in which it's slandered today are connected to the fact that in some level, there's an understanding that if people are allowed the space to work together with one another and actively unmake technical systems that they didn't build, they didn't finance, they didn't capitalize, uh, they didn't maintain, but that are supposed to be there to maintain them, right? People realize that they can undermine that technical system, then what's next, right? Because as we've talked about in this podcast, technical systems are and should be thought of as political systems, right? And if you can undermine a, a, a digital technology, if you can undermine uh, a material technology, then why shouldn't we then extend our eyes to you know political technologies in the forms of bureaucracies or in the forms of specific ways of doing politics or, or specific ideas or conceptions or imaginations or imaginaries that we have about how daily life should be lived or experienced or structured or mediated by platforms in our, in our instance, by platforms and by platform societies, right? Uh, What does it mean or what would it mean if like, you know, people realizing that they could get together and actively subvert technologies in their own workplace and communities, then decide to turn their eye to the platforms and say, let's disrupt, for example, Airbnb in our neighborhood and figure out a way to, 
crash or undermine its ability to maintain housing in some neighborhood, right? Or as I think a really poignant example that Giannis Varoufakis talks about is, you know, that um, a lot of cities have figured out ways to financialize payments on utilities, right? And so your payments for the electricity bills and their anticipation uh, for how much revenues they're going to get for or how much revenue an energy company is going to get, especially if it's a state-owned enterprise, are going to be used to figure out how they can securitize it as an asset, right? And then how some bank can get in on that um, and either then you know create more speculative investments for it or invest money onto the asset itself and then you know give the municipality more money to spend, right? Um, and if we were to figure out a way to, you know, for example, figure out in each specific asset, whose bills now, five years in the future, 10 years in the future, 20 years in the future, uh, inside of this uh, you know, securitized asset, right? Then organizing non-payment would be enough to collapse it, right? And that would then allow people in those communities the leverage uh, and the power uh, to, with that knowledge, with the crashing of the asset and the attempt, you know, a targeted violent campaign against that company, try to push for takeover of it, right? And that's one example, I think, for a non-platform thing. But I think that we can apply this more generally to the platforms that deal with organizing uh, servant work and renting um, personal property, right? There are ways, I'm sure, if we first, you know, of course, you know, create these networks of solidarity and, um, and militancy to do fine shocks or apply fine shocks to platforms, right? Because it's not going to come from uh, the stock market. I mean, as we've seen with the last two IPOs that happened over the past week with DoorDash, which uh, went from 16 billion to 32 billion to, uh, to then 69 billion, there's not going to be a push from investors. And the same goes for Airbnb, where it's now worth north of 100 billion, right? After investors had forced it to be valued at 15 billion, uh, you know, years ago, you know, there's not going to be discipline from capital. So really, it's going to be a very slow, slow and laborious push to get regulators on this on this page. We'll see regulators get on the page of the large platforms, but not the servant work ones, right? And not the rent your own stuff ones. So how do we do that ourselves? We really cannot rely ever on capital to self-discipline, right? And we, can, and we can't rely on state to come in and discipline capital for us, or at least do so in a way that is actually beneficial to the working class, right? Like the, these, these institutions are working hand in hand. These interests are collaborating with each other. But the, the question you raise here about like, what is a, you know, I understand Luddism as a political program, right? It, it, yeah, it was wrapped up in a, a tactic, right, in terms of like smashing the stocking frames. But we have to understand Luddism as a strategy, as, as a program that links together a diversity of tactics and tactics that will look differently depending upon uh, the working conditions of the time, the material conditions of the time, the political economy of the, of the, of the time, right? It will look differently and it will take place in a, in a multitude of different ways. I think here of a really insightful and illuminating pamphlet 
written a hundred years after the initial Luddite movement in 1917 by uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who she was a labor leader with the industrial workers of the world and a founding member of the American Civil Liberties Union. And she, she published this pamphlet called Sabotage, the Conscious Withdrawal of the Workers of Industrial Efficiency. And in this pamphlet, she gives uh, not only a great analysis of what sabotage means, right, which you know, she defines as um, sabotage means either to slacken up and interfere with the quantity or to botch in your skill and interfere with the quality of capitalist production or to give poor service. Um, but, but in this uh, pamphlet, what she really did, which I, which I think is a, a mark of, of, of great materialist analysis, is actually looking to see what workers themselves were doing. How were they responding and resisting um, to the machinery of capital, to the demands of capital? Because much as so much technology is created, not not just to accumulate profit, but also, and sometimes the priority reason of it is, is to discipline and subjugate labor, to disempower labor's ability to even resist or even think about things um, in, in a different way. That is a constant process and a constant struggle, which even when we look at the most dystopian conditions, you know, the human spirit always finds a way in the sense that the working class always finds ways to resist these impositions by capital. And our mission here um, is, you know, to, uh, I want to read a passage from Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's pamphlet. She says, quote, I am not going to attempt to justify sabotage on any moral ground. If the workers consider that sabotage is necessary, that in itself makes sabotage moral. Its necessity is its, is its excuse for existence. And for us to discuss the morality of sabotage would be as absurd as to discuss the morality of the strike or the morality of the class struggle itself. In order to understand sabotage or to accept it at all, is it is necessary to accept the concept of class struggle. Sabotage is one weapon in the arsenal of labor to fight its side of the class struggle. And she goes on to then say, you know, what, what is our role here as analysts, as commentators? She says, quote, I believe the mission of the intelligent propagandist is this. We are to see what the workers are doing and then try to understand why they do it. Not tell them it's right or it's wrong, but analyze the condition and see if possibly they do not best understand their need. And if out of the condition, there may develop a theory that will be of general utility. Industrial unionism, sabotage are theories born of such facts and experiences. But for us to place ourselves in a position of censorship is to alienate ourselves entirely from sympathy and utility with the very people we are supposed to serve. And I love this because what she's doing is she's striking down the moralism of all the people that that are outraged by uh, whether it's the Luddites, whether it's 
people in the street, whether it's vandalism, whether it's people uh, not giving 110% to their job, whatever right. it is, all that moralism, uh, that, that impetus to lash out against the working class, she strikes it down. That is not our role here. Our role instead is to, to um, understand not only what they're doing it, but why they're doing it. And from there, create theory, create analysis, which can then be put back into the hands of the working class um, to, you know, understand their tactics so that we might then create a strategy. Right, right. We know what the goal is, right? The goal is, you know, to, to, to achieve a state such that we can undermine right, private ownership of production, right? But the goal here is not solely to increase the amount of income that workers get, and it's not solely to make sure that workers are just like the new managers, right? It's to make sure that we eliminate the, you know, domination of capital, of, of the productive process, of the society at large, right? The, and so with, with the question of sabotage, right, the, we need to be constantly asking, not, oh, you know, is it morally okay? Is it, more, is it fine for you to break a window? Is it violence if you destroy property? You know, like, not, or not even paying those questions any mind, right? Because they're just bad faith ones. And in all honesty, it is like, I think as Vicky Osterweil has shown, you know, with her amazing history of rioting, in this country. It's been going on for so long and has been so constantly used by workers that the moralism arguments are not really like, a, they're not addressed to anyone except like pundits and commentators talking to each other and trying to, and hopefully hoping that they're going to sway one another from, from supporting it. The, our concern should be how do we figure out how to expand, develop, deepen, make harder to oppose this strategy so that when it is used and when other strategies are used um, by Luddites and neo-Luddites, that they work. Because this is hard work. This is dangerous work. People will get, people would get hurt if they were to, you know, go up uh, about this, right? People would face threats to themselves or their livelihoods, uh, either with the threat of violence from security forces or the state or arrest or fines. So how can we ensure that we create support networks, you know, to support people and provide aid for them? How can we ensure that we also develop the tools so that as few people as possible get caught or hurt? And also, how can we do it in ways that are as the interventions are as painful as possible for the uh, capitalists if need be, or to figure out some other arrangement where you can have longer sustained struggles. You know, we need to figure out what makes sense, what diversity of tactics is the best one and how we can just support that and get that in the hands of people. Yeah. I think the real patheticness here. So, it, you know, like I said, it's completely understandable that uh, venture capitalists like Mark Andreessen would toss around Luddism as this as this derogatory slur, right? To, you know, because it's within their interest to suppress any kind of uh, resistance from the working class to their projects, right? To the things that they want to build um, and never asking why they want to build it. That's completely understandable. What I think is, is even more pathetic and hearkening back to what we started the episode with uh, is all of the, the commentators and, and wonks and, and, you know, think tankers who throw out that slur of, of Luddite as well and try their damnedest to suppress uh, any kind of working class movement, any kind of labor struggle, not because it's within their own interests. They don't own the factories. They don't own the machinery. They're useful idiots for the capitalists. What's pathetic is that they've chosen 
uh, to be sycophants for capital um, rather than to build solidarity with the working class. They have chosen, this is the pathology of the petty bourgeois, right? Is that they have chosen to align themselves with a class that will never uh, bring them into the fold that will never appreciate uh, what what they are doing. It, it's 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 sad, really. It's it's pathetic when you think about it. You know, I think a good rule of thumb when we're looking at a system where uh, the gears and the cogs in its machine are human beings, right? And I think the most obvious example here would be uh, the servant apps and uh, digital platforms that use content mm -hmm. moderators and ghost work uh, to run smoothly. When you see people defending them, right, but especially defending the operation of the machine, even though it's grinding people down into dust and into bones and grits, you should ask yourself like very clearly, like, okay, well, like, what does this person have to gain from it? If it is a commentator that in no way, shape or form was a worker in those uh, machines or is um, not constantly prioritizing uh, the viewpoints of workers who are and workers who may not be. Uh, but, you know, you'd ask if, or if they're not centering viewpoints from people who are being crushed by that and considering that, um, then they're just, you know, in all honesty, a useful idiot. Uh, because it, it makes no sense to me how even if it is one person uh, being crushed, right? Even if it is one person being crushed, you should take some serious effort to ask what's going on and whether or not it is okay for that one person to be crushed. You should be you know, speaking to people who are getting crushed. And it's even more important when it's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are mm -hmm. constantly being crushed, who are constantly having their lives subverted for no purpose other than capital accumulation for six investors at Benchmark and Sequoia and SoftBank. I mean, it's, it is one of the most frustrating things uh, to have or to see commentators taking the lines of VCs on this. You know, mm -hmm. the servant apps, good? I, dep I don't know. No. I mean, like any immoral system, any exploitative system, any harmful system will surely have benefits from people increasing as they get distant, more and more distant from the site of exploitation, right? The VCs benefit the most and they're kicking it back in their boardrooms, right? And commentators benefit it from it uh, to a significant degree uh, and are able to reap in benefits, whether that is like specifically aligned with career and access, whether that's specifically aligned to this, the convenience and offers to their own life, right? And the workers are the ones who are constantly fucked over by this stuff and yet are explained to why uh, they shouldn't have access to this tool. I mean, like just one of the reasons why I just cannot, I cannot stand uh, discourse that does not like really center that is just because like having seen it in one app in or two apps in Uber and Lyft, right? Uh, up close for years is um, it makes it hard to understand any sort of argument in defense of it because so many of the arguments in defense of it ignore that convenient. They ignore mm -hmm. the suicides, right? They ignore the homelessness. They ignore the backbreaking labor. They ignore the dehumanization. They ignore the nights spent uh, without family, sleeping cold in your car. They ignore all of the real costs that are either externalized as numbers on a board or rationalized as, um, you know, growing pains towards the march towards uh, the Ashkaton or whatever the fuck they want to talk about. Yeah, we're, we're caught in this just perpetual trap 
of of the discourse. It's the same arguments, um, the same accusations um, for hundreds of years. Like, for hundreds of years, just played out again and again and again, right? Like, you know, you think about in the the big Microsoft antitrust case in the 90s, you know, in that case, John Warden, who is Microsoft's lead defense attorney in this antitrust suit um, brought by the Department of Justice. I mean, does this sound familiar whatsoever? Uh, you know, he, in that, in that case, he argued, um, quote, that this is the return of the Luddites, the 19th century reactionaries who, fearful of competition, went around smashing machines with sledgehammers to arrest the march of progress driven by science and technology. These, these motherfuckers keep playing the same track over and over and over again. They wrote mm-hmm. one song 200 years ago, and, and, it's, and it's just playing on loop, constant repeat. By playing that same track over and over again, purpose there is to trap us into into this discourse, into just replaying these same arguments and getting nowhere while they continue with their march of progress, um, continue to barrel down on people, continue to run over whoever is in their way, and then demand that you thank them for the, the privilege of it. We have to break out of this trap of debating the moralism of Luddism, of sabotage, as Elizabeth Gurley Flynn says, right? Because that moralism is what prevents us from actually having um, a politics, from actually acting, from building a, a militant solidarity that will actually allow us to escape from this cycle. Right. And and to be clear, also, that doesn't mean that we are not allowed to have moral critiques. In fact, we should. It's that you need to also understand that the people leveling moral critiques against you, it's nonsense. I mean, like if you look at Warden's own, like, you know, portfolio that he brags about uh, companies that he's helped out for, right? It's AMAX, AT&T, Bank of New York, BP, British Airways, Eastman Kodak, First Boston, Goldman Sachs, Gulf oil goes on and on and That's on. That's a portfolio of progress, Ed. <laughs> right, yeah. That's a march towards total information awareness, right? Connecting Goldman Sachs to Gulf oil and British Airways to BP, financed by uh, Bank I, I, of New I've, York. I've long said that we live in a time right now where the only class that has solidarity is the capitalist class, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's not to say that the working class doesn't have solidarity, but the only people that are militant about it, the only people that are that create conspiracies, the only people that act on it in any kind of real serious way is the is, is capitalist. And you know that's not to say, uh, and all that is by design, right? That is the process of hundreds of years of disempowering and subjugating labor from being able to build and act upon that solidarity. It's in their best interest to make sure the rest of us are passing the same $20 around while they get to keep the rest of the money. It's really easy to have solidarity when you have all the money. When you don't have the money, it's it's a perfect example. Like, you know, I, I don't want to use myself as an example in this, but I'm, you know, I'm working on the Uber Eats app. And then I see people that I, you know, in normal circumstances, if I was working, I'd give money to that I see on the corner panhandling. But I don't have the expendable income to give that to someone right now. And the problem is, is rich people rely on us to do that for them, that service mm-hmm. for them. Well, they don't want to do it for us. You should work harder. You should pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's your fault you're in that situation. You're in and then exploit your labor later. That's yeah, right. That's know. right. Luddism is, you know, the, the label of Luddite 
is one way among uh, uh, an infinite number of ways that capital pits the working class against each other, right? They use the logic of competition, um, but it's not it's not businesses competing with each other. It's se it's segments of the working class being made to compete against each other. That that is such an insidious uh, tactic by capital. Yeah, and I think that is why the distillation of ludism or what people should come away with, right, is commitment to rejecting a decision, right? It's a decision to say that when it comes to technology, um, we are going to prioritize human beings and we're going to prioritize labor over capital and corporate persons, right? And it's also a decision to say that since we decided that we're going to prioritize, prioritize those things and we live in a society and we have a technological development uh, system that clearly does not uh, we need to figure out one ways to undermine this system as it goes on to prevent it from continuing to undermine our interests, which are in labor and in human persons. And then we also need to figure out ways to places where it can be displaced and contested and undermined as that, you know, um, sabotage um, essay talks about, right? Sabotage, we can, you know, has a lot of connotation also because over time there have been attempts to undermine sabotage as a tactic, right? But we're, you know, at the end of the day, talking about withdrawal of efficiency, right? We're talking about slackening up, right? Interfering with the quantity or to botch in your skill or interfere with the quality of capitalist production or and to give or to give poor service, right? At the end of the day, right, the person who's in the best position to help is someone who's immediately involved in that system, right? So Luddites can be workers, and they can also, uh, they can be workers who are, you know, white collar or blue collar uh, contractors, employees, people who are in one way or another in a position to slacken up or interfere or botch in a way that undermines capitalist production, right? So that it does not have this sleek, ever moving dynamism forward. And as it slows down and sputters and runs into problems, more interventions are possible, right? Part of the problem is how fast things move. Part of the problem is how efficient things are and how much is constantly produced and how much people get ro uh, you know, uh, you know, run over in this process, right? Slowing it down or undermining it or making it more messy gives more space and time for us to have interventions with uh, people who are involved in Luddite efforts, but also to try to do larger interventions on forces that we can't normally rely on, right? Slowing down this machinery allows for more time, right, to do antitrust interventions as one example, and anti-monopoly interventions, which in of themselves, as they go on, open up even more spaces uh, for workers at the site of production, right? And workers in the back end maintaining these apps or developing these apps or building their infrastructure to have even more intervention, right? But when we are doing all of this, it's constant. Uh, it's also a constant decision to ignore the moralism of people defending what we will recognize as a fundamentally immoral system and pushing forward our own, right? To ignore their moralism is is. Also to say that if you want to try to recruit people into it who are close, who are engineers, who are other workers, right, um, to push forward another moral critique and another moral logic, which is that this stuff should be for the benefit of workers, should be for the benefit of the mass of humanity. It should not be for the benefit of rentiers. It should not be the benefit of 
legal persons of you know fictitious uh corporate persons instead of flesh and blood human beings right it should be for people not profit um and that struggle that fight hopefully building up a web and more connections and uh, and more modes of resistance and more sites of conflict is part of you know the diversity of tactics we've talked in other episodes uh, about that are necessary right to undermine not just you know uh key parts of you know techno capital right but also just technologies in general that threaten us daily um threaten our autonomy threaten our liberty threaten our uh, privacy threaten our imagination threaten our ecology um threaten one another um and our bodies and our um and our livelihoods Yeah, and I mean, I think just to to wrap us up and bring this home is that what Luddism represents is an understanding that uh, technology machinery is you know it is the physical instantiation, it is the materialization of the interest of capital. It's also the way that capital maintains its class power, right? It's indispensable. It's necessary um, for capital to to create machinery that sustains this system of exploitation and extraction. And not only sustains it, but speeds it up, accelerates it, right? And and therefore, uh, by targeting technology by dismantling the machinery of capital. It's also an attempt to challenge, as Marx put it, uh, the form of society which utilizes those instruments. Luddism is not a lashing out against technology in and of itself in this, in, in this kind of, as if it were just this neutral lump of matter. Luddism is instead lashing out against the political economy that is represented by that technology. It's lashing out against uh, the interest that use that technology to subjugate and dominate others. And it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lashing out and it's a form of class struggle. That's what Luddism is. That's what uh, this, this targeting of technology is all about. And and that is vastly different than um, the way that Luddism is often framed in in terms of this kind of like humanism critique, right? That like, oh, we we need to get back to a time where we had more authentic um, conversations with each other. Like, what is it, Jack Shepard in Lost? There's just like near the end of Lost that he's trying to convince everyone to go back to Ireland. He's like, we have to go back. We need to go back. And that's how uh, the romantics, right? The romantics who insist that we've lost something essential about what it means to be human. That's and- right. And Luddism is the opposite of that kind of romantic nostalgia um, because by understanding the technology in the present tense, they are looking towards the future and looking towards what kind of future is wrapped up in the operation of this particular technological system? Uh, And is that a future that we want? And if not, then uh, we have to 
dismantle this infrastructure for the bad future so that we can may then start going around and and creating the the new conditions for a different kind of future and that that is uh you know such a, a, a important understanding of Luddism, which flies in the face of the the way that it's typically misunderstood. It's not a nostalgia. It is instead a future-oriented, uh, motivated uh, critique of technology in the present tense. And I think that will bring us to the end of this episode of This Machine Kills. Um, uh, in, in the premium episode, subscribe at patreon.com slash this machine kills. Uh, we're going to be getting uh, even more into um, Luddism, uh, but, but particularly, I think we'll talk, we'll talk about some examples of, uh, of, of, of sabotage, of resistance by workers, of, what, of tactics that we would um, wrap together within a kind of Luddite political strategy. You know, because uh, as as we talked about before, you know, people do not just roll over. People in the Amazon warehouses, um, you know, while Amazon might have the most cutting edge technologies, you know, you got Monotron and Panorama uh, mm -hmm. sitting there automating the control of the factories and therefore the bodies of workers within those factories. Um, but people do not just roll over. They don't just let it happen to them. There's plenty of examples um, within contemporary times of workers figuring out ways to do their own form of sabotage. And, and, and we'll get into some of those examples um, and, and talk about it in terms of this, this is the ammunition that we need to construct a, a larger program around unmaking um, a, a, that flies in the face of this kind of radical fetishization of innovation, but innovation by and for capitalist development. Join us later this week in the premium episode, patreon.com slash this machine kills. Uh, and we will see y'all then later. Away were weavers highly skilled, till things were mechanized. Craft and artisanship killed, a threat to all our lives. Machines make the workforce shrunk. You think you'd see us settle? Where bosses said, let's junk each punk and replace you. With heavy metal! The working man was sacrificed! And the center! And Industrial revolution, our old life overthrown! So we came up with a solution, a revolution of our own. Met in the hills and planned to smash the weaving machines of gloom. Hear that sweet music as we bash. A what pop a -luma. a what bamboo! Industrial weaving, it's a snitch up! Break the device! And smash my switch up! I named our moment after Ned Ludd A folk hero who myth proclaimed 
Once reacted in a bit of rage By smashing up some knitting frames So we formed a new Luddite army Started to riot It all went balmy Shake our will, set soldiers armed with guns And though we tried to break things still We fought the law, but the law won To run and punishments were seen It's clear we'd lost the fight But thanks to us, rage against the machine Now carries the name Machines are all gone! So low! On, on what, exactly? Oof, it's so roomy in here, that's so nice. I forgot about that. Oh no, Johnny put fish in my hot dish. Oh lord, where's the vent button?